This week, as part of the story of the ousting of the Essendon Bombers CEO, uh, Koshi interviewed the venerable Reverend Guy Mason on Sunrise. Uh, Guy probably doesn't like his full title being used, but I think it's pretty funny that the venerable Reverend is not the stuffy-looking bloke on the left. Uh, I'm not mentioning this interview to distract us with the latest skirmish in the culture wars, but because early in the interview... Uh, Koshi raised a question some of us have probably asked. Uh, He was noting the different ethical opinions among people who call themselves Christian, and he said, "Uh, you all read the same book. Uh, So many other churches read it completely differently from you. Although Koshi was being combative, it's a good comment, a good question. How do you know who to believe? How do you know if you've got the truth? That's a question we're asking in the 21st century. Christians have been wrestling with this for 2,000 years. It's a big issue, the big issue we come across in Galatians. Uh, In Galatians, the issue isn't various ethical teachings. It's, It's much bigger than that. It's much more significant, much more important than ethics. In Galatians, the question is about the core truth. It's about the gospel. God's good news, the good news of Jesus. We started getting into Galatians a few weeks ago. We saw how you can't beat the real thing. And as we continue reading this letter, the question is, well, how do you know the real thing is real? Why is the gospel that Paul brought to the people of Galatia, the gospel that founded the churches in Galatia, how can they know it's real? It's true especially as we read in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, I'll put it up on the screen, there are confusers who are teaching a different gospel, which Paul says is a non-gospel. Well, how should the Galatians hold fast? Uh, Why should they hold fast to what they first heard? How do they know that the first thing they heard is the true thing? How do they know they can trust what Paul says? Uh, There are three answers to this question in our passage today. Three reasons Paul gives as to why the gospel he preaches, the gospel the Christians in uh, Galatia first received, three reasons why this gospel is true. Uh, The first reason is it's God's gospel. Uh, That's the point of the second half of chapter 1. The second reason is the true gospel leads to freedom. And that has real-world consequences. Uh, The final reason is, and it's in the last few verses of our our passage today, the final reason is the true gospel is for the whole world. So it's God's gospel, it's for freedom, and it's for the whole world. Uh, So first up, uh, the gospel is God's. Now in this second half of chapter 1, in some senses, Paul is defending himself. He's defending his apostolic credentials. But it's not really about Paul. Uh, Paul's not precious about himself. He doesn't care what people think about him. He's not protecting his reputation. It's about the gospel. But at the same time, they go together. You can't separate the apostolic gospel from the apostle. And so although Paul's defending his apostolic credentials, he goes way deeper. 
He goes deep into the gospel, showing that his gospel is true because it's God's gospel. It's God's gospel. It comes straight from God. So let's read from verse 11. This is Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, this is a big claim that he received the gospel straight from Jesus. And if you were with us as we looked at Acts last term, you know the story. Paul met Jesus, the risen and ascended Jesus, in a blinding light on the Damascus Road. He met Jesus and his life is forever changed. And it's this radical 180 degree turn that Paul uses to back up his claim. Nothing else could explain that change except Jesus. Verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father, my fathers. Uh, That's what Paul used to be like. Paul was a superstar, the young up-and-comer in Pharisaical Judaism. In his culture, he had everything to gain from sticking with Judaism. Fame, power, probably even wealth, everything to gain from sticking with the traditions of his ancestors, sticking with the law. He was on the fast lane for success. But he turned his back on it all. Just a little thing, just a little thing to note. Some people say uh, the apostles had everything to gain by making up stories about Jesus, that they made up stories to get rich and powerful like the Pope and the Roman Church. I think that's why they get this idea from. They see how Christians, and particularly the Roman Church, has got loads of wealth. They go, oh, that was their goal. Well, the problem was you've got to go for a couple of hundred, probably even a couple of thousand years, not a couple of thousand, but a thousand years to get there. Nothing could be further from the truth. They had nothing to gain and everything to lose by preaching the gospel. So why did he? Why did Paul turn his back on everything he had to gain in order to proclaim Christ? Because it's true. Because Jesus changed his life. Everything changed because of God and the gospel. And he wasn't convinced or taught by anyone else. How could he be? He wanted to kill Christians who could have got near him to convince him. But God and his gospel had another plan. Verse 15. But but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Now what's going on here? It seems the confusers, the false teachers who've come to Galatia, it seems they must be saying, look, Paul's got it wrong. He's got the gospel wrong. And it's not really his fault. He, He heard it from the apostles, but he got a little bit muddled up. You can't really blame him. But Paul is refuting this. Maybe they weren't so generous. Maybe they were blaming him. But Paul refutes this. He says, no, the gospel is God's because it came straight to me, straight from God. 
verse 17. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Uh, Paul didn't learn the gospel in Jerusalem. It all began in Damascus, and it came straight from God. Now, we've been looking at Acts, which is the the history of of the earliest Christians and the history of Saul. Uh, We did that last term. And as we read this section, this autobiographical section of Galatians, you might be wondering, well, how do these, these two fit together? Like, I don't remember the word Arabia being mentioned at all in Acts. How, how do they harmonise? How do the, the two histories fit together? So as we go through, I'm just going to spend a little bit of time explaining how the two fit together. So verse 17, uh, Paul's time in Arabia and Damascus, that fits into Acts chapter 9, the account of Paul's conversion. To be specific, this time in Arabia fits right between verses 25 and 26. In Acts, you don't read it because they just got flow on one sentence to the next, but there's actually a gap of three years. What's Paul doing in that time? I used to think that he went to Arabia to meditate. Maybe it was a mystical time when Jesus spoke to him directly. Because when you read Galatians, it kind of feels like that. Like he doesn't say what he's doing. It just says, I went to Arabia for three years. But when you read Acts, he wasn't meditating. He was on mission. For three years, he was doing what Jesus told him to do, telling people about Jesus, especially Gentiles. And then, after three years on mission, he goes to Jerusalem, spends a fortnight there. And this is also recorded in Acts chapter 9. Let's hear how Paul describes this visit in verse 18. Then, after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, that's the Jewish name for the Apostle Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, oh, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. Why is Paul telling this story? He's under attack. Being accused, I reckon, of having learnt the gospel from the Jerusalem apostles, having learnt it from guys like Cephas, Peter, but the Paul's point is, yeah, I've been to Jerusalem, but I was only there for a fortnight, hardly long enough for them to teach me the gospel. That came straight from God. And either way, I went to Jerusalem after three years of preaching the true gospel, the same gospel that you heard in Galatia. So we've had the first three years of Paul's Christian life, and then we've got this fortnight in Jerusalem. After that, he goes north to the region of Syria and Cilicia, And he gets back on his mission to preach Christ to Gentiles. Verse 21. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. That would have been the Jewish churches. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith. He once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. So what's he saying? The gospel I received came straight from God. It wasn't because the apostles taught me, it's God's gospel. And the Galatians should know it's God's gospel because only God could completely change his life. It's only because of God that Paul, who had once been a destroyer, a persecutor, the persecutor has become a preacher. Praise God. This is God's gospel. It changes lives. 
So this is the first reason to trust the true gospel. It comes from God. Paul didn't mislearn, mishear it from the apostles. It came straight from God, which is backed up by his changed life. The second reason for trusting the gospel of grace is it's actually good news. The gospel the confusers have brought to Galatia is not good news. It's not good news because it's about you. To be saved, you've got to do this and this and this. You've got to get circumcised, follow all the law of Moses. And if you do all of that, well, God might be pleased. The non-gospel of the confusers is, confusers is bad news. It's oppressive. But the true gospel, and gospel means good news, it is good news that brings freedom. And Paul illustrates this with what happened the next time he went to Jerusalem. Uh, This next visit is the same one recorded at the end of Acts chapter 11. A prophet comes uh, to the church in Antioch and tells them that the famine is coming. A famine is coming. And so Paul and Barnabas, we're told in Acts chapter 11, Paul and Barnabas collect aid from this predominantly Gentile church in Antioch and they take it to the famine-impacted poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Verse 1. This is Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation. That's the prophecy of a famine. And meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet, and this is the important bit, listen to this, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So this fight with the confusers, it started back in Jerusalem. And even though it sounds like there was a fair bit of pressure... Paul, Titus and Barnabas stood firm. Titus is a bloke, we don't know lots about him. He's not mentioned in Acts, but he's mentioned in a few of Paul's letters. Uh, And the letter of Titus was written to Titus when Titus was ministering on the island of Crete. Uh, We don't know much about Titus. Possibly he was a convert from Damascus, Syria or Cilicia. That makes sense because he is ethnically Greek. He was a Gentile. So that's Titus. What's the issue? Well, from the confuser's perspective, he wasn't good enough. Titus needed to be circumcised and start living like a Jew if he wanted to be saved. He needed to do all of that. if He, he had to be become enslaved to the law of Moses if he wanted to be included with God's people. But Paul was insistent. The gospel is good news. The gospel is about grace and freedom, not about the law. What do we hear back at the start of the letter? Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will 
of our God and Father. Through Jesus' death, believers are forgiven and rescued. Jesus died to bring freedom from sin. It's got nothing to do with what we do. It's got everything to do with what Jesus has done. This is the maths of the gospel. By adding anything to Jesus, it makes him worthless. Jesus plus circumcision is worth less than nothing. Jesus plus the law is zero. And so Paul stood firm. Titus did not need to be circumcised to be part of God's people. Being united to Jesus by faith is what brings you into God's people. And this is really important. Paul stood firm on the gospel and he knew he needed to do it because not only was Titus's freedom and salvation at stake, what was at stake was the salvation of the Gentiles, salvation and freedom for the whole world, salvation and freedom for you. He could not budge on the truth of the gospel. And we must be the same. Sometimes people talk about closed-handed and open-handed things. Uh, Closed-handed things are things that, as a church, we will not compromise on. Open-handed things are the things that we can and should be flexible about. So, for example, as a church, we are open-handed about things like music style. Some of us prefer choir music accompanied by an organ. Others of us would prefer to sing Jesus Praise with country music, all sorts of different styles. And as a church, we're not going to get hung up about music styles. And so if you are musically talented, whatever style, come and have a chat. It'd be great for you to serve us musically. It's not just kind of preferences like that. We are fairly open-handed on, I'm going to use a big word, eschatology. We aren't going to get worried about whether you think the Bible teaches post-millennialism, amillennialism, or historic pre-millennialism, or if you just think I've just spoken gibberish, I may as well have spoken another language. I kind of was. We are open-handed with that. But there are things we hold tightly to. That God is triune, the Father loving the Son in the joy and unity of the Spirit. That's non-negotiable. That salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, non-negotiable. And because we're a confessional church, we take the Westminster Confession of Faith seriously. There are other things that for leaders, for ministers and elders that are non-negotiable, things like God's sovereignty and one story of salvation for the one people of God. Uh, The things we hold most firm, that our hands are most closed tightly around, are the things central to the gospel. Not because we're picky or exclusive, but because freedom and salvation is at stake. So that's the second reason. The first reason that we know the gospel is true is because it's God's gospel. The second reason is it brings freedom. So it's worth holding on to. Uh, The third uh, third reason uh, Paul gives that his gospel is true is that the true gospel is for the whole world. Uh, When Paul took famine relief from Antioch to Jerusalem, when he took Titus and stood firm that Titus didn't need circumcision, and when he talked with the leaders of the Jerusalem church, the apostles Peter and John and also James, the brother of Jesus, when Paul went to Jerusalem, 
Both times, no one corrected him. The apostles didn't correct him. They had nothing but encouragement for his ministry. Although Paul got the gospel direct from the risen Lord Jesus, straight from God, it's the same gospel as the one preached by the apostles who spent three years walking and talking with Jesus. Same gospel. Verse 6. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Did you hear that? Exactly the same gospel, nothing to add. Verse 7 continues. On the contrary, they they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I've been eager to do all along. That last sentence is a bit strange. What's, what's the deal with remembering the poor? What's that got to do with the gospel? Just follow me for a tick. It all ties together. So Paul has come to Jerusalem with Titus and Barnabas. They've come from Antioch with famine relief. Uh, When Paul meets privately with with the three pillars of the Jerusalem church, James, Peter and John, they affirm him. They agree, hey, Paul, your gospel, that's true. Keep preaching it, mate. They they just recognise God's given us different tasks. James, Peter, John, their job is to take the gospel to Jewish people. That's what he means by Peter preaching the gospel to the circumcised. Circumcised means Jews. So they're to reach the Jews with the true gospel of Jesus. Paul's job, along with Barnabas, Titus and others, Paul's job is to take the gospel, the same gospel, the true gospel, his to tell the whole world about Jesus. Doesn't really sound like a fair distribution of work, but that's God's way. And so they agree. We are both, we are all on about the same gospel, the same way of salvation, two different mission fields. And this is where we get back to verse 10 and remembering the poor. Because even though it's two mission fields, it's one people of God. It's not that there's a Jewish gospel and a Jewish way to be right with God, and then there's the Gentile gospel and a Gentile way to be right with God. What's prevented by this private Jewish meeting is the, is the development of two separate bodies, two peoples of God divided and separated by ethnicity. It's not Jewish Christians as one group and Gentile Christians as another. No, there's one people of God. And so as the gospel goes into the Gentile world, it goes from the Jews like Paul and Peter and then Gentiles around the world are saved And as Gentile churches are established, they're to remember the poor, which I take it from Romans 15, refers to believers in Jerusalem. The point of remembering the poor is practical gospel unity. Because there is one gospel, the true gospel, saving one people for the Lord Jesus. And it's God's gospel It's from God. It's about what God has done in and through Jesus. 
It's a gospel that brings freedom. Do you know this freedom? To have your sin forgiven, to be rescued and assured of eternal life with God. And it's one gospel for the whole world. It unites believers in Jesus, no matter our ethnicity, no matter our politics, no matter our Christian denominations. The true gospel gives deep unity. Even when we might have different understandings about secondary matters. Uh, The problem David Koch identified uh, that there are people who call themselves Christian but have different ideas about what this means. It's not new. So don't get worried. In the first century in Jerusalem and Galatia, there were people who called themselves Christian, who said they were following Jesus, but they got the gospel wrong. So there might be different opinions, but we do need to work hard to make sure what we believe is the truth. Back in the first century, there were confusers. There are confusers today. But more than that, they weren't just confused. Verse 4, Paul says that they were false believers or false brothers. It doesn't matter what they thought themselves to be. It doesn't matter if they've got the same book. What matters is what they think about Jesus. Do they hold to and teach the true gospel? How do we know if it's the true gospel? If it's God's gospel of freedom for the whole world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for everything you've done in and through the Lord Jesus. Thank you that in Jesus you have revealed yourself to Jews and to Gentiles. Thank you that your gospel brings freedom. Lord God, please help us to keep holding fast to what is true. Help us to also know the things that are not central to the gospel and to be appropriately gracious and open-handed with them. But help us hold fast to what is true for our sake, but also the sake for our neighbours and friends who don't know Jesus, that they might hear from us the true gospel and come to trust in Jesus. Amen.